You're listening to Tech vs. Media with Richard Walpert. Bullhorn brings to podcasting what color brought to television. It makes podcasting a rich, immersive experience. With Bullhorn, you don't just listen to shows, you interact with them. Bullhorn lets content creators share live videos, chat with the audience and take questions, post polls, take call-ins, share images, and more. If you want to experience what podcasting can be and should be, download the Bullhorn podcasting app today at bullhorn.fm. Stop listening. Start interacting. On today's episode of Tech vs. Media, we have Melody Hobson, who's going to share with us what it's like to be Yoda's stepmother. What was it like to be the lead negotiator and chairman of the board when selling DreamWorks Animation to Comcast? the importance in her work in diversity, along with some great advice for those just starting their career. All in today's episode on Tech versus Media. The following program is brought to you in living color. We have a big show for you tonight. But there's one more little thing. Today, Apple is... You know that sound... It means it's time for another episode of Tech versus Media. I'm your host, Richard Walpert. I've been on both sides of technology and media for the last 36 years. Started my career at the original software team at Apple on the Macintosh, as president of Disney Online, four-time founder and CEO, an investor in over 100 companies, most as an angel, some as a venture capitalist, including now with Acru Capital. Today, I'm very, very honored to have our guest, Melody Hobson. She is a co-CEO and president of Ariel Investments, a firm that was founded over 35 years ago and was the first African-American funded asset management firm in the country. She started there just after graduating Princeton. It's the only job she's ever had. I think today is going to be very educational, entertaining, and informative. We start, Melody, with something I called Rapid Fire 10. What was your first job at what age? My first job was working in a clothing store. I checked the merchandise in and I told the Feb and told them I was 15, even though I needed to be 16 to work there. True or false, you are Yoda's stepmother. Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, yes, I say that my husband is Yoda's dad, George Lucas. I don't know if that makes me his stepmother. I think it does. I don't know. Okay, fair enough. You could have dinner with any three people living or not. Which three people would you pick? Well, for sure, I'd put Martin Luther King on the list. I'd go King, Gandhi, Mother Teresa. I would also like to spend some time with Jesus, <laughs> the Prophet Muhammad, Buddha. <laughs> you could throw them all in there. Okay. Uh, your favorite form of exercise? Running. The thing you've accomplished at Ariel that you're most proud of? I think I've grown into a compassionate leader. I think I was a bit didactic in those early years and I thought logic ruled everything and probably didn't have enough heart. And I think my heart has really come through. The nonprofit that's closest to your heart. After School Matters, where we give teens in Chicago the opportunity to pursue their own dreams with after school programs. We have over a thousand programs and we serve somewhere in the neighborhood of 25,000 teens a year. It's the largest after school program in the world and we pay them to come. That's impressive, Melody. Do you feel like now is a turning point for racism and even openness to accepting things like transgender, mental health, et cetera, 
in this country or not really yet? I'm always hopeful. So I'm going to take the yes on that one. I hope also that I won't be disappointed. I hope so too. You could do anything you wanted tomorrow. What would you do? I do it already. Warren Buffett says, do the job you would do if you didn't need a job. That's what I do. Right. Which of your accomplishments overall are you most proud of? I think it's having a child. Okay. So tell us a little bit about Ariel. What does Ariel do? And then tell us how you went from being intern to being co-CEO. What was that arc like? How did you meet John Rogers? Tell me all about it. Okay. So it's 31 years now. My anniversary was August 1st. And I'm the only person from my graduating class from Princeton out of 1,100 people who has had the same work phone number since I graduated from college out of 1,100 people. So that tells you a lot about me. We have a turtle as a logo at Ariel, and we say slow and steady wins the race in keeping with Aesop's fable. And I actually live it in terms of the stick to itness that I've demonstrated professionally by being here. So you could imagine if you spend 31 years someplace, which is more than half my life, I'm 52 years old, there must be something really special. There must be something keeping me here. I choose to do this every day as opposed to needing to do it. And it's very much driven by this relationship that I fostered with the founder of our company, John Rogers, who started our company when he was 24 years old, 38 years ago. Amazing. So it's been a very, very exciting time my entire career. I met John Rogers as a 17-year-old. He was in charge of the schools committee at Princeton, which was the group of people that interviewed students for Princeton. Once accepted, I went to the dinner for accepted students. I was not going to go to Princeton. I was going to go to Harvard. And a Princeton alum sat next to me and changed my mind. What did that person that was sitting next to you at dinner say that got you to change your mind over a dinner from not going to Harvard to going to Princeton? It must have been pretty profound. So it started off with him saying, it's so great you're going to Princeton. And it's a table of 10. And I was like, no, I'm not going to Princeton. I just came for the dinner. He told everyone at the table, take your plate and get up. He said, you stay where you are, me. So he moves everyone's seat and he ends up sitting next to me. And he said, I'm about to rescue you. So he said, basically, there's this opportunity for you to be in this community that is only going to focus on you as an undergraduate. And it's a big deal. He asked me for my phone number. This is so weird. He's class of 65 and I'm 17 years old, right? right? How I gave him my phone number, I have no idea. He called every day until I had to decide. And the last, and I kept leaning towards Harvard. My mother was basically saying Harvard is like Coca-Cola. Princeton is like Sprite. Okay. <laughs> She's like, everyone knows Coke. She's like, you could be in an African village and say Coca-Cola and people know what you're talking about. And she said, the same is true of Harvard. So he invited me to come to this breakfast where Bill Bradley was in town in Chicago with a group of Chicago area businessmen that included John Rogers. This was one of those examples of the universe aligning. Which is why I'm asking this question. This dinner changed your life, right? Yeah. He changed my life. And that's basically the reason I decided to go to Princeton. I said, if these people care this much about this school, there's something really special here. No disrespect at all to Harvard. You still didn't tell me, though, like how you went from intern to co-CEO. Hard work. You know what it's like, Richard. I mean, we just put our heads down, right? Yep. Yep. It's not glamorous. It's just Saturdays and Sundays and late nights and early mornings. And 
the unique thing that happened to me was at one point, John took me to see Jack Bogle, who started Vanguard Group. He was on the board of Princeton with John. And John said, I want you to meet this woman in my firm, which I'm sure was not high on the list of Jack Bogle's priorities. Right. But he told us to fly to New York and take a train with him to Philadelphia. So we did and literally got on a train, then flew back to Chicago. And it was on that train. I was 23, 24 years old. And John said, Melody's going to be president of Ariel. And I want her to meet influential people in the industry. But our board said she has to be 30. And I was like, what? Interesting. Yeah, I nearly fell out of my seat. Wow. And so I was groomed from the beginning. So were you chairman of the board of DreamWorks to start or just on the board? How did that come about? Did you have prior experience in entertainment or film? I know you were all the way through the Comcast acquisition, I think about 10 years on that board. How did that come about? What was that like for you? I believe that was before you met George even. Yes. Was that your first deep entertainment experience? How, how did that come about, Melody? So I, there's this book that I love about, of all people, Vince Lombardi. I'm not a big football fan or anything like that, but there's this book that was written by a guy named David Moranis, and it's called When Pride Still Mattered. And in the book, it talks about football coaches that begat other coaches. And this David Moranis describes it as this begat theory, who begat, you know, and he, he can point to all these coaches and this person started here and he became the assistant coach there. And, you know, and this begat theory was a big part of, of Vince Lombardi's development. And I was begat. So I was begat by a lot of people, but the begat theory for me, I talked about Richard Misner and John Rogers, but Howard Schultz, I went on the board of Starbucks and he took me to DreamWorks. And I'll never forget, I was traveling and he called me and he said, you know, I'm going on the board of DreamWorks. It's going to be a, it's going to IPO. And I told Jeffrey Katzenberg and David Geffen and Steven Spielberg that you should be on the board. And I was like, what? You know, (laughs) I'm in my early to mid thirties and I'm just like not believing this conversation. And did you have any active entertainment investments or We've had significant exposure to media at Ariel for my entire career. We've for years and years from everything from Viacom to CBS to Merida to Gannett, we've been in the space for a long time. So from that perspective, yes. At the same time, I love media. I've always, always, always loved media. I've always loved news and information, always. So I just jumped at the chance because I love the idea. And so when Howard recommended me, I went to interview with Jeffrey and he asked me on the spot to join the board. I was not the chair. I was the pipsqueak in the room. And I literally called the board moguls are us (laughs) because it was around the table where all these moguls and it was David Geffen and Nathan Mervold, Tom Preston, Meg Whitman, Howard Schultz, Paul Allen. I am a scrub, I promise you. And the chair of the board is Roger Enrico, who had been the CEO of Pepsi. These are giants in industry. So all I could do is just be really prepared, you know, like. Which you would have done anyhow. You would have done Well, I just had to, I was especially prepared. So it was just like such a invigorating environment. You were on for about 10 years though, right? Yeah, 10 years plus. Roger and Rico went off the board and Nathan Merville said Melody should be chair. And the rest of the board said, he's right. She should be chair. And I remember thinking, why do they think that? And I had been this somewhat of a board intermediary at times with 
Jeffrey and management. And I had a perspective. I always had a point of view. And I was one of the people who could tell Jeffrey no. Yes. <laughs> and, and don't people like Jeffrey, those people love people who will tell them no, don't they? Yes. They yearn for those people. And we developed just, I mean, I literally talked to him every week. I used to talk to him every day. We ended up developing a very, very, very close relationship, certainly professionally, and in making sure we were doing everything conceivably possible to enhance shareholder value, which ultimately meant selling the company. And that was, you know, a defining moment professionally and then also personally. You know, I just learned so much through that process and I became the go-between between the company and Brian Roberts and the Comcast team. I heard that it was you who helped get an extra four or five dollars a share at the last minute. Is there any truth to that? Well, we had another deal and yeah, the conversation evolved. They didn't know me and they didn't know what to expect. Right. So I actually think that helped. So you were chief negotiator, basically. I ended up being. It didn't start that way, but very quickly it evolved into that. And, you know, there was no posturing. I told them I wasn't going to do it. I said, anything I'm going to ask for, I really need. And I would hope you would do the same so we don't waste any time. Sure. And I literally started the conversation that way. I said, I will only ask for what I need. Mm -hmm. This isn't about leaving you with nothing left and fighting to the last nickel. It's about what do we need to get the deal done? And if they can't do it, that's fine, right? Yeah. We had another deal in the background. But again, they wanted the company and we wanted them to have it. That's what I told them. I was like, we both want this. Yes. So let's just, let's, let's make it happen. They were the right people to own DreamWorks. It was a jewel of a, a company. Of course. And Comcast, most people don't understand just how big Comcast is, right? Because they own NBC Universal, meaning Universal Pictures and NBC, the network and everything that goes with it. How do you feel they're doing as a company that needs to diversify as they started in cable, right? Xfinity was the bet, one of the best cable services. Certainly my daughter, Skylar, who, you know, just turned 23, doesn't have cable or satellite, never will. The good news about Comcast is they offer amazing broadband service, but they also own all these other assets. Do you feel like they're making the transition? I mean, one of the things I've seen in my relatively small 36-year career, when you look at the history of media over 100, is those that evolve, survive, and those that try and hold on to the past die. You feel like Comcast doing a good job of this evolution because they saw that cord cutting is going to happen? Yes. So first of all, to this day, I remember a quote that I read from Brian Roberts in the Wall Street Journal. I literally, I can see it. I underlined it because I thought it was so profound. But he said, listen, around here, we're not sitting around talking about the good old days. I thought that was a really profound thing. We are forward looking. And I think a lot of people are waxing on about nostalgic times that don't exist anymore. Warren Buffett says champions adapt. And I think that's incredibly important. That's what I've seen at their company. When you really think about it, they are the one true vertical integrators. You know, they got the pipes, they got, they have the content, they've got the whole, you know, up and down the food chain and it's given them more optionality as things have evolved. And for example, recognizing they needed to own DreamWorks, we saw that they didn't have kids and they didn't have animation. 
And Disney, of course, had that locked. And you had some other examples of that. But we filled a void that they needed. They saw it. We saw it. That's why they made such a good partner. So I give them a lot of credit for being very visionary and not one-dimensional in their thinking and not holding on, as I've suggested before. I remember a presentation that Brian Roberts made at uh, J.P. Morgan CEO Summit, where he talked about unbundling and he talked about where cable was going, et cetera. And it was years before it had happened and he was not defensive about it. I remember thinking that usually CEOs, especially, you know, they're thinking about if I say this, what happens to my stock price? Right. Instead, he was just being very forward thinking. So I give them a lot of credit. And what you've seen as this whole thing has played out that obviously there are valuation differences around the companies, but how they've gone about it is fundamentally different if you'd use those three examples. Sure. Disney has been an acquirer. Obviously, Comcast has acquired as well. Netflix has not been an acquirer. I mean, there are a whole host of issues here that are fascinating to see these different playbooks. But Netflix, they saw their own death when they were a DVD by mail business and they were smart enough to change. Yep. And that was, remember that conversation? It was like, I remember their stock just got shocked. Basically announced that pivot. Yeah. And then the pivot into original programming, which they now spend billions of dollars on. Which is, I'm back to Champions Adapt. Sure. So you mentioned, you know, how Comcast is doing it, how Disney's doing it, how others are doing it. So Disney acquired Marvel, Pixar, Lucasfilm. You go on a Disney Plus and you see these iconic brands in addition to Disney. So you're married to George Lucas. I've told people I've been to Skywalker Ranch and they want to like touch me. So you spend (laughs) a lot of time there. How did you guys meet? What have you learned from George about the entertainment and media industry that you didn't know that was like surprising to you, either in a good or bad way? Well, first of all, we met at a conference. I remember being engaging with him because I was on the board of DreamWorks and he obviously is pals with the dream workers, as I call them. What I would say I've learned from him. There are so many things. I mean, as it relates to media, he's had this point of view always about theaters would always serve a purpose in our society because it is a social endeavor. And even though screens got better and sound at home got better and you could watch anything, you'd still want to go and see a movie on the big screen. And his thought was it would become a higher end experience over time. And I think we've seen that with some of the stadium seating and where you can get food and and all of those things. He saw that piece play out. He's talked a lot lately with me about because there's so much to watch that ultimately someone's going to figure out how to curate it. Mm -hmm. There would be a curator of all this content so that you know where to go because there's just so much and all of it is not obviously created equal, Mm -hmm. just as same as true of movies. Sure. And so I think that that point of view will ultimately prevail, even though I don't know how that will go. And it'll be more than an algorithm saying, oh, you watch this, so you will like this. Mm -hmm. The other thing that George, especially during the pandemic, He's been talking to me a lot about international television shows and the quality of them. I mean, he's really taken with some countries and their production and the quality of the stories. I mean, he just thinks that the global media business, Mm -hmm. when it relates to content, 
has the game has really gone up. Mm-hmm. And he said some of the countries that are producing some of the best material are unexpected, you know, not repurposed in America, but the original, you know, he's been watching Korean television shows and the nature of the content. It's been democratized mm-hmm. in a different way. And that's because the cost of shooting have come down. I remember when the Canon camera was something that was good enough to shoot a feature yeah. and George coming home and saying, Melody, you, you will not believe this. He said, when I was, you know, I, he started as a cameraman and he would say the camera was so heavy. And he's like this, we shot this video and he said, this can be in a feature. And I remember him saying, this is going to change everything. Yeah. Everything. We were at Skywalker Ranch and you were telling a story that when you were first dating George, And you came to Skywalker Ranch, you had this sort of feeling that, oh my God, this man's a genius. What about Skywalker Ranch made you have this sort of eye-opening, this man's a genius moment? I saw someone who had executed a vision in a big way. And when it was described to me, I was floored. So for example, he bought as many covered bridges that he could find in America because they were made out of redwood. And he used that for the basis of building a lot of the ranch. He also bought wine barrels that were made out of redwood. He built a stained glass facility as well and then deconstructed it when he was done. And I thought to myself, who does that? Yeah. And he talked about the need for beauty to inspire. He said, I need my people in order to be super creative. They have to be inspired. And I want them to work in an an environment that's very beautiful. And I just remember thinking that is vision and genius executed in a way that it wasn't about cost benefit analysis of what he was spending on it. It was understanding that the cost had a benefit that couldn't be calculated really. And it was in the details. The details were everywhere. You know, you could look in nooks and crannies and see details that you just would not expect. Mm-hmm. And that's where I was like, this is where everything matters. And then it became clearer and clearer to me as I watched the movies, I could see the details and how we thought. I could see it as he described things to me about Indiana Jones. He would say, you know, everything in Indiana Jones scientifically needs to work. Mm-hmm. Just things like that where it's like details. Yeah. And that was something that, I don't think people understand that to come up with the stories to do what he did. He did all this research. He read about religions. He, I've seen all the books, yeah, binders and binders of worlds yeah. that have dishes and clothes and languages. And, and I'm like, this is as detailed as stock analysis. Interesting. You talked about the importance of curation. And I think what everybody was excited about in 2019 was cord cutting. And I think the excitement was around, oh, I spend $150 on cable and there's going to be a way for me to cancel the cable bill and get an HD antenna for local news and sports and spend $30 a month on the two or three streaming services I like. And I feel like in some ways from a consumer experience, we've gone backwards, right? I have Disney Plus and Hulu and Apple Plus and Netflix and Amazon Prime. I don't know what's on which streaming service. A friend tells me to watch a show. I say what streaming service is on. They're not sure. At least when it was Xfinity with all my premium channels, I had one electronic programming guide and I knew where to look. And 
Today, don't you feel in a way it's gone backwards where now there's six different streaming services and they all think they know your preferences and they all have different things they're pushing at you? Don't you think that needs to be fixed? I remember having this conversation with a very, very famous media CEO. And I remember it was during that time of, you know, the early discussions of unbundling. And I remember the CEO saying to me, unbundling is going to happen, but what people don't realize, it's all going to add up to be more expensive. Mm -hmm. Everything that they're complaining about, when you go a la carte, it's going to be more expensive. And that's exactly what has happened, right? The a la carte is more expensive. Yes. Have we gone backwards in some ways? For sure. I think the technological challenge of different passwords for different streaming services. And if you have another home just to get on the streaming service at another home, I mean, it is like you're on vacation, even on vacation. Now you have exactly. I, I think that all will need to be rationalized at some point. And there's someone who out, who is out there who's going to do that, which means you're going to rebundle somehow the streaming services sure. with some premium plan or some, you know, basic, I think, you know, who knows who will do it? Who knows if the, the streaming services will buy into this idea? I have no inside track on this perspective. It just sure. seems to me to be a logical solution at some point because there's too many and it's too hard to manage. We're going to be taking a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to hear from Melody on the importance of diversity, mental health issues, and also hot topic today, gender neutrality. All of that when we come back on Tech Versus Media. I often say on my show, I'm having discussions with the people that you know and the people that you should know. The same can be true of a law firm One law firm you should know about, an LA-based law firm, is Stubbs Alderton Markleys. I've known Scott Alderton for almost 20 years, and I've used his firm for not only my personal work, but for HelloTech and other companies that I've been involved with. They specialize in technology and media, the topics that we discuss in the show. If you're looking for a law firm that will pay attention to you at a reasonable price, please reach out to Stubbs Alderton. You can send Scott an email. It's salderton at stubbsalderton.com. And if you need help spelling that email address, just go to the show notes for today's episode. There'll be a direct link you can click on to email Scott. I highly recommend Stubbs Alderton Markley's. One of my favorite sayings is, show me you love me, don't tell me you love me. And what I mean by that is words are easy, but action is hard. And if you want to show true impact and intent, action is important. One of the firms I'm very proud to be associated with, a venture capital firm called A-Crew Capital, A-C-R-E-W Capital.com, was founded by five people, only one of which was a white male, which is extremely rare in the venture capital industry. They are extremely focused on backing female CEOs, people of color, transgender. They put their words into action. And if you're interested in working with a VC firm that's truly focused on diversity and shows it with their action, not just their words, I highly recommend A-Crew Capital. Again, that's A-C-R-E-W Capital.com. So I want to talk a little bit about some of your board positions. We talked about you were chairman of the board of DreamWorks. You're on the board of JPMorgan Chase. You're chairperson of Board of Starbucks. Recently, I saw a quote. You said that, and I hope I get this right. I understand the symbolism of my role. I will be the only black woman as a chair of a Fortune 500 company currently. 
in the US, there is something wrong with that. I mean, it's pretty obvious to me what's wrong with that. But what were you hoping people would get out of that quote? Too few. You know, they're too few. It's not enough. You know, I think people would think only as something that you would pride yourself in. And I see it as just an indictment of our society and where we are. I think the fact, on one hand, if you read it singularly thinking about Melody, you can say how impressive. If you think of it broadly in terms of business and inclusion in business at the highest levels, not just the C-level, right? At your point, the board level, it's kind of a shame. I'm ashamed, to be honest, that we're still there. Right. You know, everybody talks about its importance. And I, I think you had a quote you referenced George says about Yoda. Do or do not, there is no try. Exactly. But I think that quote is relevant because, I mean, of course, we saw more Black Lives Matter movement posters and shirts and everything in the last 18, 24 months than we have in many, many years. And on one hand, that's wonderful. But on the other hand, I, I don't see, right, I'm on the board of many companies, not as, as prestigious as yours. I focus more on startups. I have this saying in life, Melody, especially in business, show me you love me, don't tell me you love me, right? It's easy to say it, but if you show me, I believe it. And I feel like the world is saying it, but not showing it yet. Would you agree? Wow, that's brilliant. I hadn't thought about that in that way. You know, I keep saying less talk, more action, more elbow grease on this issue is what we need. And you're exactly right. Words are not enough anymore. We need actions. When I look at what's happening in the world right now, Melody, and I asked you in Rapfire 10, is this a turning point for racism? There's racism, which is not just African-American. Look at what happened with Asians in this last months, right? I believe there's been tremendous progress in gender neutral focus or transgender issues, which I think the spark was probably Caitlyn Jenner. And then even things like mental health with Simone Biles. I was sad for Simone, but I was somewhat happy that night too, thinking like, is this going to be a turning point for this, for mental health, for people that she's so brave? Do you think this is a turning point or am I a privileged white over-middle-aged male, and I just still don't get it? Both. (laughs) So I think that has this conversation been elevated in a way that in some areas it has not existed before, for sure, especially around issues of gender and that redefinition, redefining gender as we've done it recently, which I find to be so fascinating. And then at the same time, we're play, replaying some issues over and over again on race yes, and some forms of sexism in our society. Yes. We're replaying those issues over and over again. So I know a few people in their mid-20s to late teens that want to go by them, they're they, right? And, and I'm working hard to use those words because I have, I'm completely open, I think, as you know. I do my best to be inclusive and I'm working hard to say them and theirs. Should I have introduced you as a black woman though? I feel like I would have been racist to introduce no, you No, but way. also you don't need to avoid it. That's, that's the part that I'm talking about. The other part, and I think this is, I don't want to be confusing about it. I do think, however, let's, let's be in a corporate environment. Let's look at when people talk about diversity, they roll everyone up into a multicultural umbrella, which masks underrepresentation. 
I've been in so many meetings where certain industries, let's do the tech industry, 30% of our employees are diverse. And I'm like, you have no black or Latinx people. Right. So there, you know, you've got 2% black. Yeah. So by putting them everyone together and calling us multicultural, and sometimes even gender is thrown in there. Sure. We are not dealing with pre-existing conditions. Let's use the, the language of the day. Sure. Does that make sense? Yes. So that's absolutely. all I'm saying. And so then when you say we need to be deliberate and distinct, there's an inclination to avoid that kind of dissection because it feels like you're over-rotating. And I'm just saying you're not. You know, that's that's all I'm trying to say, that when you see me, you see a Black woman, it's okay for you to describe me that way. You don't have to run away from that because that's what I am. I'm not saying it has to be a descriptor. I'm just saying it doesn't have to be also left out of the conversation, which is why I find it fascinating that from a gender perspective, demands are being made. Yes. Yes. You know, I've used this example in my TED talk. I said, let's pretend for a minute that I show you the board of a big company. Let's just pick a company out of thin air. I say it on my TED talk and I say it's ExxonMobil. And I showed you the board and every single person was black. You would say, what is up with that? All I'm asking you to do is when you see that all white male board, especially in the VC world, in the startup world, et cetera, someone has to say, this is not right. And so that's the jump that we have to make where it's, you can see the lack of diversity and lack of inclusion and it's called out for the betterment of the company and the betterment of society. I understand. What in your career has been your biggest regret or advice you would give to somebody who's starting out now? I think the advice that I would give to someone who's starting out now, go easy on yourself, but not too easy. And so the, what I say about that is I think there's a certain type of personality that you have it, I have it, you know, there's that type A plus, mm-hmm. you know, George calls us special forces mm-hmm. that I think we hold ourselves accountable in a way sometimes that does not give us permission to give ourselves a break. And I think that's when you get to those mental health issues and those stress issues that become debilitating. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a, a sign on my wall that says, Worrying is like being in a rocking chair. It'll give you something to do, but it won't take you anywhere. (laughs) You know, I think about years and years of worry. Sure. It just is not productive. Sure. Now, so go easy on yourself in that regard, but not too easy because I think also the flip side of it, as I'm a little worried about today, is this idea of, I think so many people are talking about the need for taking care of themselves in balance. And I think that that could tip over into narcissism and a form of, inactivity that is also not good. You know, you've got to live on that edge. Right. And that edge is a hard place to find, but I think it's very important. So you've been to so many events with so many celebrities, famous people, et cetera, many, many in your life before you even met George, I'm sure many since. What for you is sort of a pinch me moment of a, oh my God, I can't believe I'm here. You talked about when you first met all the people on the board of, of DreamWorks and how everybody was a mogul but you. But what what was an event that was a pinch me moment for Melody where you're like, I can't believe I'm actually here? This one I remember, remember vividly. And listen, I'm not one of these people who puts a lot of thought into the idea of celebrity or anything like that. I want to spend time with accomplished people who share my values. It's not about what they have or who they are or how much they've made. That just is not 
how I'm coded. But what I will tell you, I remember once going to an event and it was at the White House. George was, I don't know if he was giving it or getting it. It was related to the Kennedy Center Honors. Mm -hmm. We did it twice. And once George received the Kennedy Center Honor, once he gave it to Steven Spielberg, And we were in the White House. And I think this was the time George was giving the award. And it was early in our history of dating. George Bush was president. And we were in one of the rooms. And I'd never been in the White House before. But here's the story. I've never told the story. Sure. I was standing with, I did not know them. But I had struck up a conversation over the weekend, because it goes on over a weekend, with Smokey Robinson and Barry Gordy. And the three of us were standing and they are best friends. Anyone who knows them knows that best friends. Sure. Sure. And Barry Gordy looked at Smokey Robinson and I'm standing there and I'm like this sidekick. Sure. They don't really know me, but they're, they're engaging me in conversation. And he said, Smokey, we're in the white house. And Barry Gordy started to tear up and Smokey Robinson started to tear up. And I started to tear up the three of us. And we're just like standing this corner. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, yeah, this is crazy. Like mm-hmm. I'm in the White House and I'm standing with Smokey Robinson and Barry Gordy and they realize how profound this is too. Right. And the three of us stood and cried. And I, I literally well up telling the story and thinking like, this doesn't even make sense. Yeah. But having a lot of appreciation for the moment with them. Yeah. It's a great story. I appreciate you sharing it. Last question. Podcast called Technology versus Media Convergence or Clash. Which do you think it is? A convergence or a clash? Or both? I think it's both, but I think everything is technology now. Every company, every industry is now technology. So both, but technology slightly ahead. Well, no, because I also think our entire world has become a media-driven world because of social media. And because anyone can be an influencer, anyone can get noticed, you can have something go viral around the world and get literally hundreds of millions of views. And so I think it's both. Well, Melody, thank you so much for spending this time with me. Hopefully our listeners got a lot out of this. You know, I say often at the beginning, my podcast is about the names you know and the names you should know. And I know most people in our circles know your name, but You're not a household name, but you should be based on all you've done with Ariel and all you're doing for Black Lives Matter and the nonprofit you've done at Chicago, where you say you have thousands and thousands of students getting support and getting paid. So thank you so much for your time. It's been an honor to be your friend. I really appreciate you taking the time from Chicago this morning. I want to thank Melody for taking the time to be with us today sharing so many insights about what it's like to be an African-American who's running a mutual fund company that's been around for 30 years to being on the boards of some of the biggest companies in the world. And also what we talked about with mental health and diversity. When we come back, my final thoughts. Certainly great perspective today to hear from Melody. One of the things she said that really struck home for me that I just want to underline for everybody when she was talking about selling DreamWorks to Comcast, and I asked her about getting a couple dollars more a share at the end, specifically what she said was she called up the people at Comcast and said, look, this is what I need to get the deal done. And if you can do this, you will get the deal. And if you can't, we will part friends. 
And she wasn't hedging and she wasn't bullshitting and she wasn't putting up a number that was truly more than she needed, but it was a number more than that they had given. And her being that direct, that honest, and having built the trust in the negotiation of the relationship actually got the deal done. And I've seen that happen many times, but I certainly want to put an underline on that. One of the other things I think was important that she brought up at the end about advice goes to this topic I've seen a lot. Maybe it's because I'm nearing 60 here, but this sense of entitlement that 20, 22, 25-year-olds have. And when I asked her what advice she had for people, she said, don't be too hard on yourself. But then she did, and I think this is addressing the entitlement part. She also said, don't be too easy on yourself. And she mentioned how her and I got our start which was working seven days a week, sometimes 10, 12 hours a day. And if you want to be top in your field, that's what it takes. Whether you're 20 or 30 or 40 or 50, if you have not got there yet, that's the work that it takes. I want to thank my producer, AJ Mosley. Also my chief of staff, Lily Ramadi, who even though I know some of these people, pulls together some great data that helps me ask these insightful questions. I hope you learned something. I hope it was a little bit entertaining. If so, please click that follow button on whatever podcasting platform you're listening to this on. And even better, if you liked it, please leave a review saying what you liked. Even give me suggestions for future podcasts in the review. I'm happy to do that. And I hope you listen to the next episode of Tech Versus Media. From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.